0: For Lean Blog Audio, I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to Episode 118 of the podcast for May 10th, 2011. My guest today is Jim Womack. He was the founder of the Lean Enterprise Institute, now serves as a senior advisor to that organization. And we're continuing the discussion that we started in episode 116 that focused on his new book called Gemba Walks. Today we're talking about a broader range of issues, including the auto industry, um, General Motors and Toyota, where they've been and where they're going. We'll talk about a combination of Lean and Six Sigma, and we'll talk about some other topics as we go. So the podcast can be found at leanblog.org slash 118, and you can also go there if you'd like to post a comment or leave feedback. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us again and for taking time to do another podcast. Thank you. So here we're going to talk about the state of the auto industry, where it's been recently and where it's going. And I think back to my very first day as an employee at LEI in June 2009 was the exact day that General Motors filed for bankruptcy. So I wanted to hear your thoughts about um, General Motors in particular and where things are going.
1: Well, this is a, uh, a big thing, GM. It's hard to turn. Uh, GM really invented modern management under Sloan uh, back after the disaster of 1919. This uh, 2009 bankruptcy was really the third um, what you really should call bankruptcy in the history of GM, one in uh, 1910, just two years after it was founded, uh, the second in 1919, and then the third in 2009. Uh, I guess looking at the bright side, well, it will be, I don't know, what, 900 years until the next one or something if you you know work out the, uh, the sequence of numbers. But uh, part of the problem with GM is that they were so good at Sloan-style modern management. And then once that didn't work, uh, it turned out that everything had to change, and that has been the big problem. It's not a trivial uh, issue that when you create a business where every manager thinks in a certain way and you have this long, long long-running union relationship that works in a certain way and the public thinks about you in a certain way, uh, for anyone to walk in and say, we will now all think and think about each other and behave toward each other, and deal with our customers in a different way, uh, this is a truly heroic uh, challenge for anybody coming in uh, as a uh, sort of transformative leader. So, well, what you can say about GM is that um, so far so good that uh, without uh, the government uh, getting into it, uh, hard to know exactly what would have happened. Uh, you know, really a big meltdown, not a little meltdown. But uh, they've come through that. The world is uh, not necessarily going to be such a friendly place uh, for car companies coming up because uh, whatever you think of the climate issue, uh, cars figure prominently in what people talk about doing about it. Whatever you think about oil and oil availability, uh, cars as we uh, talk about it today uh, just overwhelmingly live on oil and there are lots and lots of new competitors uh, coming into the car industry uh, the most interesting of which are the state-owned Chinese companies. Uh, the companies that get all of the publicity are the private BYD, uh, Brilliance, Great Wall, Geely, uh, and so forth companies, but uh, the ones that are just enormous, which are the venture partners of all the multinationals, are the big uh, SAIC, first automotive companies, that uh, are going to have their own brands and own cars here very shortly. So this is not going to be an easy industry uh, for anybody uh, to flourish in, and so, therefore, that's the background. Uh, having said that, uh, it's interesting to me that GM, I think, on the day they filed for bankruptcy, was a better company than they had ever been. That uh, they really did fix the plants uh, after about 2000. It took them about 15 years of fooling around before they could finally get the General Motors, uh, you know, the global manufacturing system to actually get traction. Uh, but they had plants as of 2009 that were actually good enough. The uh, GM did not fail because the uh, number of hours of effort or uh, the number of defects uh, in their plants were not competitive. Uh, they failed because they had all these legacy costs that uh, they just couldn't deal with. And uh, Rick Wagner uh, kept thinking if he could just get about another 10 years in North America, of 17 unit, million units per year, he could somehow or other get the pig through the python. Uh, which is all of those uh, retiree and healthcare costs, uh, and he just couldn't get there. So that was uh, what happened to the bankruptcy was that uh, that was greatly uh, relieved. So now uh, their wages are competitive uh, with the uh, other players um, in the North American industry, that their plants are good enough, uh, not brilliant, but good enough. Uh, their product development system is pretty good when they can get focused, and uh, shedding all of those hopeless brands that they couldn't support. Uh, is really uh, a wonderful uh, advantage for the product development system because they now have less badge engineering and just uh, fiddling around on the margins to do, and so it should be easier to get focused. Uh wish I could say that anything much has happened with suppliers, uh, by the way, with any of the companies, other than they're now coming out with volume forecasts in terms of tooling that aren't just completely loony, and uh, that's bound to make your suppliers uh, think a little bit better of you. And then, uh, to me, the most striking thing, and this has nothing to do with GM of itself, in fact, Toyota in some ways has the biggest problem, that the whole dealer relationship with the customer within with the factory just uh, refuses to get better. And no one seems to actually have any ideas, even though Toyota figured out how to do it in Japan 50 years ago. So, therefore, when you look at GM, you say, hey, a product development system, pretty good. Uh, factories good enough? Supplier relations, well, you know, at least they won't be throwing chairs at each other as long as they're meeting their volume forecast. Dealers, GM's dealers, uh, if you look at the power numbers in terms of customer satisfaction, are better than Toyota dealers, so uh, that's some modest, advantage GM. So, therefore, there are a lot of good things about GM. Um, What I've written and what I write in the Gimbal Walks book is that Sloan made it so clear what GM's purpose was which was a product for every person, purpose, the customer having the purpose. And every GM product was to be slightly more refined and sophisticated than comparable products at similar points in the market. And that was Sloan's simple answer to what GM was going to do. They were going to give you a slightly better car, whoever you were, whatever your purpose, than the other guys could give you. And GM got vastly wealthy off of simply doing that. Now you say, well, what's the purpose of GM? And I just attended a lecture, uh, that's quite the word, it was a discussion that Dan uh, Ackerson, the new uh, current, uh, the latest uh, CEO at GM, uh, had at the Sloan School here at MIT. And there was a lot of uh, kind of talking about the need for heroic leadership and dramatic intervention and so forth, but there was absolutely no explanation of where this army, or in his case Navy, since he's an Eldenapolis guy, where this Navy is sailing. It was a lot of rah-rah and a lot of energy, uh, but at least uh, to my ear, I kept saying, right, but what's the purpose of General Motors uh, beyond, you know, they're going to sell you a volt? Uh, So I think that's the great challenge, and that's not an easy one. As I say, uh, transformational leadership is a lot bigger thing uh, than people perhaps think. That I think you really do have to restate an organization's purpose and its relation to its customers and what customer problems it's going to solve better than anyone else can solve them. Uh, to be truly successful for the long term. Sloan did that between 1919 and the mid-1920s. He was there until 1955. I would say the system started to grind down after Sloan left, and then it did get revitalized a bit um, after 2000. So uh, look, uh, they're okay. They're going to do okay for a while. But uh, if they're going to go back to being that uh, real exemplar, of corporate performance that they were for about 60 years, uh, I think they've got to have a better statement of what their purpose is that customers can hear and understand, which will make customers willing to pay more for products in a, in a very crowded market uh, than they probably are willing to pay for GM products right now.
0: So let's shift now and talk about Toyota. Um, one of your essays in the book Gamble Walks is called How Toyota Won and How Toyota Can Lose from A couple years back and there's some people that would give you some credit uh, in a way for predicting perhaps some of the problems that Toyota has run into with its growth and allegations of quality problems. But now considering that the NASA report has come out um, more or less clearing Toyota for some of those problems and allegations and I think we have a little clearer picture of what happened there. Um, What are your thoughts on um, Toyota's situation
1: and future. Toyota set out to do something that was just incredibly bold, which was to uh, go out into a world that managed its affairs in a very, very different way from Toyota and to teach an enormous number of people who actually had been trained to manage in a very different way uh, how to adopt, embrace a new form of management. That is a very bold thing to do Uh, out of a country that, uh, when I first started going to Japan in 1971, had uh, modest language skills, very inward-looking, not very comfortable out on the world stage, certainly not very comfortable designing or producing abroad. So what an amazing march uh, to go out across the world to become the world's largest uh, car company and largest manufacturing company to do that in a relatively brief uh, span of time, particularly after the late 1990s when they decided to really go for the brass ring and to displace GM as the world's largest uh, manufacturing company. So that was a very, very bold thing to do in a company that we're used to think of as being very cautious and plotting. And that was a conscious decision they made. And I think we could all now agree that uh, that was uh, a little bit further than they perhaps should have aimed for. So they got into a situation as I observed it. And look, I, unlike many people in the lean community who spend a lot of time around Toyota, I really don't. Uh, You know, I never lived in Detroit and I never lived with the transplants. I've always felt I'm more useful being an outsider, being an outside observer. And because Toyota, by the way, did so many good things for so many years, everybody presumed that I was just practically on the payroll at Toyota. Uh, Absolutely not. I never received any money at all from Toyota. And by the way, they were never particularly nice to me. Uh, It was always hard work to get them to tell me anything. But as the outsider, uh, who was still pretty highly informed, I could just see that uh, the faster they expanded, uh, the thinner the management was in terms of true understanding of the core Toyota ideas about how to create value. And I also knew that was going to be trouble because uh, it is going to be trouble if you lose uh, control of your management uh, philosophy and you're just teaching it abstractly by telling your employees to go read books rather than teaching it by example over an extended period, well, eventually you're going to uh, run off the road or hit the wall or something. So you didn't have to be terribly clairvoyant back in 2006-7, uh, as the system really reached its peak, uh, just expanding at a staggering rate. As one year, I forget which year, they grew their sales by 20 billion dollars. I mean, can you imagine 20 billion dollars in a year, increasing manufacturing sales when you know a large fraction of that is from Toyota or their core supplier group? Uh, That's just a staggering amount of capacity and a staggering amount of new managers and workers to add to a system. So uh, the further they went and the faster they went, I said, my gosh, this is now a very uh, creaky uh, mechanism. And at some point, something bad is going to happen, and they're going to go off the road. And I didn't know when. By the way, I had absolutely no uh, notion. And this business with the uncommanded, unintended, unexpected, whatever acceleration uh, really was just a random event that uh, you had an American cabinet secretary who needed to endear himself to uh, his president uh, from an opposite party. Uh, You had a bunch of very confusing and noisy data uh, based on this uh, web log that was created in response to the uh, Ford Expedition uh, Firestone Tire issue a decade ago where anybody could go to the web and log an incident in a vehicle without even having to give a VIN number. Uh, And then that stuff's all visible out there for people to see. So uh, that's the world, however, you live in as a consumer products company. Just ask Johnson & Johnson. Uh, This is not about cars. This is about being a consumer products business uh, in a world that demands a whole lot of uh, transparency in a way without doing any verification of the fact that all of the items being listed so transparently are actually real. So, uh, however, that's the plate where it lies. So, therefore, the timing of their problem was completely accidental. And look, it could have happened three years later. It could have happened two years earlier. But I think that uh, they were going to have some problems was uh, not something that was uh, uh, just an accident. I think there was almost a deterministic quality about that. Uh, By the way, this is uh, the best thing that ever happened to Toyota, that uh, it gives them uh, uh, a cause for hunting, for critical self-reflection, and they're doing a lot of that. And Akio uh, Toyota, after a very shaky start, uh, you know, you really shouldn't hide uh, from the media in a foreign country. You really ought to go to Washington and, and take your medicine. Uh, I think is serious about saying, let's get back to those basic values. But having said that, um, I think it takes years to teach managers how not just to think, but to behave consistently under pressure in times of difficulty, uh, consistent with Toyota's uh, management philosophy. And I don't think there's really a shortcut to that. And by the way, it's one-on-one teaching. It's in some ways very old-fashioned. It's master, apprentice, uh, sensei deshi, deshi, as we would say. Uh, It just takes time. It takes a lot of A3s uh, to create a new lean manager. So I think there's an inherent do-not-exceed speed with regard to their ability to expand. And, uh, look, let's uh, say that uh, we don't absolutely have the data yet that a company of that size really can teach its management system to enough managers to get consistently brilliant performance. We just don't know. They don't know. Uh, So an experiment is now being run to see just uh, how big a company growing, how fast is really possible. And uh, the data from the last year or two is that you can't go as fast and you're not likely to teach as effectively as you would hope. So that's where they are. Hey, by the way, they're still here as the world's uh, largest car company. Uh, I have to think they just uh, are delighted every time they hear Dr. Piek at Volkswagen say that he's going to pass them to become the world's largest car company because uh, that is an objective, let me just be very clear, that is of no use to any customer. No customer cares whether they're buying a car from the world's largest car company. So how is management think they're solving customer problems by embracing that as their objective. Uh, it's just uh, arrogance and uh, hubris. And uh, then hubris, if you're lucky, uh, leads to hansei. Uh, or lucky, I mean, you know, if you've got a brain in your head. Uh, I guess if you don't uh, have any willingness to do Hansei, well, uh, hubris just takes you right over the falls.
0: So, Jim, one other question I wanted to ask, and it's a question that has come in from a number of people via the web um, is to, to maybe practice some Sai reflection uh, about the term lean, and on page 227 of Gemba Walks, so you reflect a bit on the term lean, which of course came uh, out of the work from your MIT research team. So, some 20 years later, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the word and what it represents.
1: Well, look, the word's always been problematic. What word do you pick? The word uh, was a label. And labels are always well superficial. We came up with that term in '87 when we needed a name for what we were seeing. Uh, by the way, just an aside on the MIT project: we did something that most academics don't do. Instead of uh, doing a survey of development in manufacturing, of I'm sorry, performance in manufacturing, product development, supplier management. Um, and then just take the data that comes back and spend endless hours regressing it against everything and doing all kinds of statistical manipulations, uh, we decided from the outset that we would go out and verify every number by walking the gimlet And so that gave us a uh, enormously uh, powerful set of insights about what was really going on, that we were benchmarking performance, but then we were trying to trace it back to methods, techniques, what managers and employees were doing. So we had set out to look at every car and light truck uh, assembly plant in the world. We never got all of them, but we got most of them. And uh, John Kratrick and John Paul McDuffie and others were out uh, verifying every number in every plant. So by 87 and certainly by 88, uh, we had some uh, very compelling evidence that um, Toyota and Honda, who were typically the star performers, Mazda as well did well on our surveys, Uh, really were in a different uh, place uh, from the American and European companies in terms of their ability to get products to market quickly and accurately, in terms of their ability to make things with low hours of effort, with low defects, with low inventories, with low capex. And so we needed a name for it. And uh, this whole situation as of the mid-'80s was a Japan versus the world thing which we thought was just a complete misunderstanding of what was going on. It was not about Japan. It was about a different management system, which really only uh, Toyota and Honda uh, had fully mastered, and, and, and Mazda was copying. Uh, so what to call this system? I mean, you know, you don't call it Onoism for Taiichi Ono, uh, or Nakamuraism, uh, Nakamura-ism for uh, Kenya Nakamura, the guy who invented the chief engineer system of Toyota. Uh, you going to call it Toyota-ism when uh, Honda does it Mazda does it? Are going to call it Toyotaism ism for AG Toyota and the family? Uh, all of those labels just seemed wrong, and yet we needed to call it something. So the term mass production was out there. Uh, I wish we had probably used the term modern production or modern management, but we weren't quite into postmodern at that point. We said this is a contrast. On every dimension, it's just different, so what do we call it? And we had a session in the office at MIT in the big uh, boiler room where I had all the young uh, people who had come out of industry, came back to MIT to get some additional credentials. And there are probably a dozen of us sitting there. And I don't even remember who all, John Paul McDuffie and uh, Krapchick and Joseph Farrell from Brazil and Richard Lamming uh, from the UK and Toshi Nishiguchi from Japan. And all of the young people, these were all kind of late 20s, maybe early 30s, but probably late 20s uh, young people. Krapchick wasn't even that old. Um, we're sitting there one afternoon saying, we've got to have a name for this thing. What are we going to call it? Because we were getting ready to do some publishing. And so what do we do? So it was agreed we should uh, label it for what it did. So I remember holding the chalk at the whiteboard. You don't hold chalk at a whiteboard. I had my marker. My marker at the whiteboard. And said, okay, so it uses less time, right, less time to go from concept to launch, less time to go from raw material to customer, and it uses less effort, right, less hours of engineering to do product development, less hours of human effort in the factory. And there are fewer suppliers, right, fewer suppliers, and there are fewer injuries, well, there actually were, and there's less inventory, well, you yeah, know, there was, and there are fewer defects, less defects, and, by the way, you can make money at lower volume Uh, because of the ability to flexibly uh, change over from one product to another, less, 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 less. And so then John uh, got his moment of fame, John Krafchick, by saying, I've got it, let's call it lean. So I remember writing on the blackboard, L-E-A-N. And, of course, the problem is that lean rhymes with mean. Lean rhymes with mean. Now, lean also rhymes with green. Uh, So, hey, I don't know, maybe there's something there. But uh, the biggest problem with the term is it's about less. And, of course, what we meant was you create more value with less of everything. And the more value sort of got lost. And that's a great shame. So what's the word we should have used that, in one word, captures more value, more customer problems solved, happier customers, better experience, work experience for the people uh, who are creating the value, and then less. So it, uh, more value, better experience, less of everything. Uh, don't know what that word is, didn't know it then, don't know it now. And so we settled on lead, and here we are.
0: One other question, um this also came in from people over the web, talking uh, about terms and, and methods. Curious to hear what your thoughts are on the packaging of Lean and Six Sigma or Lean Sigma, if you will?
1: Well, first off, the problem, of course, is is training companies. Uh, Organizations spend a tremendous amount of money on training. Uh, Most advanced countries spend a tremendous amount of money on education, uh, and I'm skeptical that an awful lot of it makes any difference because simply training people to do something, uh, when it's disconnected from what managers are going to ask them to do, or what the work, the fundamental work, requires them to do is not likely to be very effective. So any program, whether you want to call it Lean Sigma or Sigma Lean, or you know how about Eight Sigma and really Lean, uh, Nine Sigma and, and hyper, you know, perfectly Lean, uh, Zero Muda, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, I'm just got my problems right there. When you've got a program and a label. But then, on the other side, uh, you know all of these ways of thinking, these isms that are out there uh, that you get from total productive maintenance and you get from six sigma and you get from lean, um, and you could think of lots more. Uh, basically, everybody who's out here trying to do this is trying to figure out how to create the perfect process that creates perfect value with the least possible resources. okay, So you're trying to recreate perfect value with the least resources. And These are all different starting points on how to do that, that the uh, Six Sigma folks started with variation, in other words, with process capability. Okay? Now, when you look at what people are really doing with their DMAIC projects, well, it's all kinds of stuff, much of which often just looks not different from lean. When you look at TPM, which started out as a machine equipment availability exercise, but then they changed the name to Total Productive Maintenance to try to get your head off of maintenance and into productive. And you look at the good people in the TPM uh, training world and they're telling you to look at the whole picture. Uh, The lean guys were trying to figure out how to uh, basically take the wasted steps out by reorganizing things in process sequence and how to make every step capable and available and how to make it adequate. And there's another interesting discussion with the Theory of Constraints folks Uh, hey, we need uh, adequacy, we don't need bottlenecks. Um, So therefore, they're part of the conversation as well. Uh, You put it all together, and in some big picture way, everybody uh, in the process improvement, continuous improvement area is trying to do the same thing. A little bit different focus, a little bit different emphasis on this versus that. And so, therefore, the conflicts between these, I think, are often basically driven by consultants whose best form of advertising is to diss whoever came before. And you really do see an awful lot of negative advertising in the consulting world that long ago ceased to shock me, but I still think it's sad. So, a lot of the supposed conflict between, uh, let's say, Lean and Six Sigma is just completely imaginary and non existent, and it's just driven by consultants who feel more comfortable with one approach or another. Um, and it's a big distraction. So I always say, hey, look, uh, we're all trying to create uh, the process which uh, provides perfect value with uh, zero uh, resources. Uh, Let us cheerfully proceed together. Uh, We're going to use slightly different uh, methods uh, to get started and to do this and that and the other, but much of the supposed conflict here is uh, just really uh, made up. But having said all that, uh, no amount of training Uh, is going to make much difference if you don't change the way managers behave and the way the work is organized. So, uh, therefore, it's a bigger problem way beyond any conflicts within uh, the different isms amongst the process improvers.
0: Well, Jim, thanks for taking your time to share thoughts on General Motors, Toyota, the word lean, lean Six Sigma. I want to thank you, and uh, as we'll get more used to saying, um, Jim Womack, Senior Advisor to the Lean Enterprise Institute. Thank you.
1: Hey look uh, Mark, uh, it's uh, it's been fun and it's not over yet. That uh, this is really a long long thing that in the book I have a, a lean walk through history exercise that goes all the way back to the Venetian arsenal where they literally uh, pioneered flow production by floating the boats down an assembly line. Uh, But good grief, Uh, what were the Chinese up to when they built the treasure ships in 1421? What were the Romans up to with all those gazillion identical wine jugs and the boats that sunk in the Mediterranean? What were the Greeks up to? Uh, This is a long history of human beings trying to think creatively about process and trying to improve process. Uh, We've been at it for a couple thousand years. We've been at it really seriously for a century because I think Henry Ford was the first really uh, systematic uh, process lean thinker. Uh, I think a lot more people have got their head in the game now, but it's a big game. And there's just an enormous amount to do, so the notion that we're going to be through this year, next, or the year after is laughable. Uh, That we're ever going to be through at all, though, uh, I think is uh, to look at it the wrong way. That I think this journey really does have a destination. The fact that uh, none of us uh, personally are going to get there is one thing, but that doesn't mean there still isn't a destination. And look, I think we're making steady... Stumbling progress along the way. And my role has been to be the outsider, because I'm always an outsider. I'm, I'm never an insider. The guy who's just out there taking a walk, uh, pointing out uh, a different way to think about reality, or maybe just a way to think about reality or to see reality. And so, therefore, it's been a, a great journey for me. Uh, I don't feel I'm nearly finished, but even when I am finished, well, then there are just more people who need to get on the journey. And gradually, One of these uh, eons, uh, we might even get there, but uh, it'll be a long time, so let's keep on keeping on.
0: Well, thanks for uh, supporting your fellow stumblers uh, like myself and the others that are listening, Jim.
1: Okay, great. Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.